do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. So said the man who is the subject of this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. The artwork for the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's album is a montage of various figures who we like, as the band said. One, one in, on the top left-hand corner of the back row, is a grumpy-looking bald man. A man who has influenced many other musicians, including David Bowie, Led Zeppelin, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Ozzy Osbourne. A man whose life and work, since its renaissance in the countercultural years of the 60s, has continued to fascinate, influence, obsess, inspire and repel many. The so-called wickedest man in the world, Alistair Crowley. But before we dig into Crowley's life, I'd like to invite you to join us at the Bureau of Lost Culture, bureauoflostculture.com. Come along for the ride. Sign up for our newsletter and treats. Write to us. Tell us who you'd like to hear about on the show. Support our wild endeavours. Crowley, the great beast, was an English occultist, a ceremonial magician, poet, painter, novelist and mountaineer. He founded the religion of Thelema, identifying himself as the prophet entrusted with guiding humanity into the Aeon of Horus. Born to a wealthy family in Leamington Spa in England, he rejected his parents' fundamentalist Christian faith to pursue an interest in esotericism. In 1898, he joined the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, where he was trained in ceremonial magic, then went mountaineering in Mexico before studying Hindu and Buddhist practices in India. In 1904, Crowley claimed to have been contacted by a supernatural entity who had dictated to him the Book of the Law, a sacred text that served as the basis for his religion of the Lima. The book declared that its followers should do what they willed and seek to align themselves with their true will through the practice of magic with a K. In 1912, he was initiated into another esoteric order, the German-based Order Tempi Orientus, O-T-O. Some claim he was recruited into the British Intelligence Agency and that he remained a spy throughout his life. In 1920, he established the Abbey of Thelema, a religious commune in Sicily, where he lived with various followers. But his libertine lifestyle led to denunciations in the British press and the Italian government evicted him. Over the next two decades or so, he spent his time in France, Germany and England in London and continued to promote the labour until his death. He gained widespread notoriety during his lifetime, being a recreational drug user, a self-confessed drug fiend, bisexual, transgressive. He has remained a very influential figure. Some people consider him still to be a prophet. He's the subject of various biographies and studies, but a new book, City of the Beast, published by Strange Attractive Press, takes us with Crowley on an occult tour of London to visit the locations that he frequented and lived in. It reveals the man beneath the myth, the flaneur beneath the fiend, and provides a fascinating glimpse into a lost London and the person who wrote it, Phil Baker, author of books on Dennis Wheatley, William Burroughs, occult artist Austin Osman's spare sax Roma, 
author of, of course, Fu Manchu books, is with me today. We're going to get into how the 1890s were the Victorian decade of counterculture, sex magic with a K, drinking ether, how Piccadilly was the capital both of the British Empire and British prostitution, the power of the orgasm, the sex diarist Walter, John D. Edward Kelly, snails, sex, drugs and Wagner. Hello, Phil. Hello there. I said to you just before, off air as it were, this is an epic work. If you love London, it's a great London book. If you're interested at all in Crowley and the Occult, it's a great Crowley book. Just for listeners, um, there's 95 chapters. 93. 93 chapters. 93 chapters. Each chapter is a place in London. Not all central London, some Croydon and some outline areas. And each has got an anecdote or a little essay by you about Crowley and his is his association with that place. It's a City of the Beast presents an enthralling psychic geography of a London that is irrevocably lost. Piccadilly Circus was once deemed to be the absolute centre of the British Empire, and it and its immediately surrounding streets with their grand hotels, restaurants, cigar shops, gunsmiths and prostitutes were the favourite stamping ground of the tweed knickerbocker clad occultist Alistair Crowley. That's Robert Irwin's quote about this, and we're just around the corner from there. Maybe that could be our first place, Piccadilly, but let's start. For anybody who doesn't know Crowley, who was he? What was he? Um, he's probably the 20th century's most influential and famous occultist. He's been very, very big in popular culture. For example, I mean, he's on the cover of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper LP, um, as in part of that Peter Blake collage, People We Like. And he's, uh, Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin is a great Crowley enthusiast. There's a track about him by Black Sabbath. Um, he's been big, big, big in popular culture. Um, <clears throat> after being quite unfashionable by the end of his lifetime, someone rather unkindly says he'd gone from being the great beast to the great joke to the great bore. So he came back in the 60s right. in a big way. Yeah. Uh, he died in 1947. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, that, one of the interests, in a way, in terms of the, this, this show, of course, was that in the counterculture, the kind of classic countercultural era, 60s, he had this kind of renaissance, didn't he? Which Absolutely. is what he's saying on yeah. the, the Beatles yeah. cover. Yeah. And he came back. And so, uh, and why was that? He was right. very, very libertarian and very, very transgressive. So he seemed to go with an ethos of sex and drugs and rock and roll, really. Or in his case, I think sex and drugs and Wagner would have been <laughs> about the ticket for him. Um, but he was, he was the great transgressor, and that's really been his role. He was the, as the popular press, they pilloried him in the 1920s and 30s. He was the wickedest man in the world. Right, which, considering the other people that hang around in the 30s, like Stalin and, uh, you know, Hitler's on his way up. He's relatively it's, 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 harmless, I think. It was, yeah. it was pretty, that was a pretty yeah. strong epithet. Yeah. <clears throat> Love is the law, law under will, and of course, uh, do what thou wilt. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Um, that feeds right into the counterculture, doesn't it? Yeah. Although it has a slightly more serious meaning for Crowley, which was about finding your true will, um, which isn't just a matter of doing whatever you want to do. It's almost more like uh, where you find out who you really are, what you really want to do. It's almost like Jungian, a Jungian idea of so-called individuation. So he did mean it a bit more seriously. He didn't just mean uh, to go kind of crazy. Right, so like in more of the sense of intention or destiny or something. Yeah, like yeah, 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 a bigger thing. Yeah, I mean, as well as that, English occultist, ceremonial magician, poet, painter, novelist, the mountaineer, also self-confessed drug fiend. Right, I mean, he's dying. That's a big part of his appeal, big I part think. Of it, yeah, it, as well. But lots has been said about him, right, and lots has been written about him. 
Um, but this book is quite different, partly because of the reasons I said earlier, in, in the sense that it's a gazetteer of London as well. Not quite a walking guy, but it could be. Um, but also, you have got an insight into Crowley, which most people haven't. And, it, and I'm not going to kind of, uh, you know, blow you up here if you don't want me to, but there's not that many people alive know more about him than you do because you've been editing his diaries. I've been helping to edit his diaries. Right. I only have a little bit of input into the diaries, but I help, yeah, I have mm. been helping really with the, some of the London material mm. and it's access to the diaries that makes the book what it is. It's a much more intimate picture of Crowley than you would get in books which are primarily about his significance as an occultist. This is Crowley, it's about women and food in London, right. really. Um, was there anything in the diaries that you found out that surprised you, shocked you more than you already knew? He's quite transgressive, not only in the way that he's meant to be transgressive, he's transgressive in ways that perhaps we don't find quite so funny these days. Um, people have to discover those for themselves, but some of them are really not very funny at all. Um, <clears throat> but no, broadly, he's no worse than I expected. Um, <laughs> Morally, yeah. Well, you're in. Incredible. Although I had quite a, <laughs> you had quite a low. You'd have to get quite anyway. deep to get um, more transgressive. Yeah. 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 I mean, and just to put it in a bit of context, obviously, you know, in the intro I mentioned your previous works, and particularly, you know, Austin Spare. And I remember when the your biography of Spare came out. You know, you had a, in a way, I suppose, a similarly kind of mixed view of him because, again, an occultist and an amazing artist, right? But I remember you always described him as a fabulist. Oh yeah, a posh word for liar. Yes, um, yes, he was a great confabulator. Confabulator, and um, with Crowley, I think it's—is it the same then thing that, that there's extraordinary things about him? There's maybe even things to admire about him, but at the same time, he was quite deplorable. Yeah, I suppose he was deplorable. Ethic. He did mean well. Um, he actually did have a vision of freedom and excellence, although it's very much a social Darwinist vision. It is about trampling the weak, and you know, a kind of excellence of a rather, um, the sort that's become associated with fascism, I suppose. Um, although he certainly wasn't a fascist because he was too libertarian. He wasn't that collective. He could never be as collective as uh, fascism would be much too collective for him. Mm. He was yeah. a great individualist. Great individualist. Mm. So, so <coughs> circling round to City of the Beast, in, in his life, and, you know, that spanned lots of different places, didn't it? He was a mountaineer and and of course, the the Abbey was in Italy, wasn't it? And mm -hmm. of course, he lived in Boleskine Manor for a while, yeah. Jimmy Page's yeah, house, yeah. Uh, by Loch Ness. But so, what role did London play in the geography of his life? Um, it was where he ended up, but it was also it's the capital of the culture that formed him. Mm. I mean, he's in a sense a great Victorian. He's a great anti-Victorian, which is another way of being a Victorian. Um, and so, what does that mean, anti-Victorian? Well, because he was so anti-Christian, um, anti-patriotic for most of his life. Um, a, totally against Victorian morality, loathed Queen Victoria, personally <laughs> broke into song and dance when he t was told she died. Um, but he still has that extraordinary kind of richness of Victorian culture behind him that gives him the confidence to be this Antichrist figure. So London was the centre of this kind of culture that yeah. formed him in some way. Yes, also it? London was very much the capital of the 1890s. As I've come to understand a little bit more about Crowley, I've come to see that in many ways he's a kind of 1890s figure. Um, and the 1890s was a bit like the swinging 60s. Hmm. And London was sort of the capital of both of them. It's a time of um, sexual permissiveness, sexual experimentation, experimentation with drugs, occult revival in both cases. And we're going through another occult revival now. 
Um, so yeah, the 60s, the, the 1960s and the 1890s have something in common, and Crowley's very much a belated 1890s figure for all of his life, I think. Right, I want to come back to you or be going through another occult renaissance now. I think we should return to that, but I'm just going to read a bit from your book, <coughs> okay? And this is about Piccadilly, you've just run the corner. Right. An early entry in Crowley's sex magical diary, Rex Date Regia, King of the Royal Art, records that on the 6th of September 1914, he had an all-day session with a Piccadilly prostitute, Christine Rosalie Byrne. A sturdy bitch of 26 or so, that's an inverted commas, that's not Phil's words, who went under the working name of Peggy Marchman, as in Marchmont Street. Then a street of cheap lodgings in Bloomsbury. The object, since from now on Crowley generally had an object when he had sex, was knowledge of the mysteries of the ninth and power to express the same. So maybe you could sort of unpack that. That's uh, our Piccadilly story to start with. Crowley's great innovation that he actually got from certain people in Germany uh, was so-called sex magic, which very much followed on after ceremonial magic. Um, And then after that, in the history of magic, I suppose we had this thing called chaos magic. But sex magic was the central secret of the Order of the Temple of the Orient. And this was Crowley's, as he calls it, his principal engine for magical workings, which is that whenever he had sex, he believed there was a magical potential in this. If you could focus your will and consecrate, consecrate each kind of orgasm to a particular object in your mind um object meaning a sort of goal uh, yes 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 a a goal um some of the some of the examples might seem a bit banal or ludicrous but um in one case he's wanking himself off but the aim is well he's in america and the aim is twenty thousand dollars it's about what people now would call manifesting actually or you could be having sex and you could be thinking money 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 in the hope that you would, or in, the, in his case, in the confidence, that you might then win the lottery or come into an inheritance or a windfall. So every s- sexual act for him was an act of magic. And it was about this idea that you could tamper with the workings of the universe through the power of orgasm, I suppose, and, and uh, sexualized concentration. A knowledge of the mysteries of the ninth, in yes. this case. The ninth, it's typically dressed up, everything's dressed up by Crowley in Masonic language. So there's lots of stuff about degrees. And so there was the eighth degree, um, which is just kind of autoerotic, as we would say politely, Um, the ninth degree, which is normal sexual intercourse, and the eleventh degree, which was anal intercourse, sodomy. Makes it sound a lot uh, grander than that. It is very, very dressed up in Masonic language, because he mostly used prostitutes. Right. Um, You say here, the whole procedure once explained to me in more simple terms, have a fuck and make make a a wish. wish. Yes, as a man once said. I'm not a man I entirely liked. Um, But he's, in fact, the weird thing is he's wrong, because it should actually be make a wish and have a fuck. (laughs) So he's got that crucially wrong. So that's the way around. (coughs) It should really be. You consecrate consecrate the kind of the Mm. intention first. You mentioned then prostitutes, and and it is peppered. Uh, if that's the right word, with uh, prostitutes in here and in interactions with them, particularly around here. So maybe just talk a bit more about Piccadilly in this, in this area as well. Yeah, well, Piccadilly, in- of course, was not only the capital of the British Empire or seemed mm. to be the absolutely iconic sort of focus, but it was also totally associated for many years with prostitution. Um, and that The two things are so synonymous in Crowley's mind that when he's, he often takes the high moral ground. So he complains, for example, about Puritans who see sex in everything. Um, because he's talking as if he doesn't. Um, so he says, these people, they're, they're so obsessed that when, when they look at the Mona Lisa, all they can see is Piccadilly. 
So the, the sense of Piccadilly being a site of prostitution is just totally, totally taken for granted in that statement. You see the Mona Lisa, you think Piccadilly. Um, and Piccadilly was pretty much his lifelong stamping ground, not just right. the circus, but the whole long road. And it was so much associated for much of the 20th century with prostitution. Mm. And that was where he found a lot of his prostitutes. Where was he living then in that time? When he, was, he, was he went through an enormous street. number of short-term addresses. It's quite surprising how many he did go through, mainly because he had a lot of trouble paying the rent. So he was often kicked out and he lived very light. He didn't have many possessions as you'd have, you know, you wouldn't be able to. So he lived in furnished rooms and things. He was at one stage, his sort of brush with bedsit land. He was living in an awful place now demolished in Paddington called Manor Place. Um, for quite a while when he was doing better towards the end of his life, he lived in German Street above Paxton and Whitfield Cheese Shop, kind of at the back, um, which is very, very convenient for Piccadilly. Um, right. <clears throat> And yeah, he lived briefly in Soho. Even he was, he was in Edwards Street, which is now di disappeared, renamed. But it's very, very close to here. It's the end of Broadwick Street, and it's now just Broadwick Street. Well, worth saying, of course, he wasn't from London, and of course, also he 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 wasn't a originally so strapped for cash, was he? In fact, he came from no, quite a wealthy background. He, he did. He came from a brewing. There was a brewing fortune mm. behind him, um, but he burned through his money quite early on, um, travelling mostly and very, very high living. Um, and so ran by, certainly by the First World War, if not earlier, his money was really gone. So the sex magic wasn't working that well then? Not for raising money, no. Mm -hmm. um, because if you talk to magicians now, they often have quite realistic intentions about why they would consecrate a kind of sexual act to magic. And it's more to do with things that are within your kind of sphere of psychic influence you might want inspiration or you might want health or you might want motivation um, kind of a way of reprogramming yourself and he does that as well and that was seems fairly reasonable but he also has totally as it were occult expectations from it to bring on the second world war he had a lot of sex with a woman called Maisie in um, Pimlico and quite a lot of the sex with her was was devoted to bringing on world war Two. Um, and often for money as well, and there's no not much sign of money materialising usually. Well, World War Two did materialise. That, that did, but I don't think we can hold him entirely responsible for <laughs> did that. Did he claim responsibility uh, for it? No, can't remember. He might have done. I can't remember. He did certainly think that the publication of one of his books caused wars. He related its republications to successive wars: First World War, I can't remember the Balkan War, the the Russo-Japanese War, mm. and then the Second World War on the horizon. Mm. So. Um, yeah, I mean, he was not a modest man, was he? No, so he wasn't. It wouldn't he be wasn't. surprising no. if he did uh, no. claim that. Yeah. No. I mean, uh, st sticking with Soho, um, this is chapter 80, and uh, you say, the writer Maurice Richardson met Crowley one French pub, mm. right? <coughs> Dean Street, then often known by its older name of the York Minster. Yeah, the York Minster. Or, or Berlamont's. Berlamont's, because of the landlord. Crowley was dressed, says Richardson, in a tailcoat and striped grey sponge bag trousers, like a duke in a musical comedy, and he smelled of ether like an old-fashioned operating theatre. He told Richardson this was because he had started the day by drinking half a pint of ether. He'd certainly used ether extensively when younger, but he was probably pulling Richardson's leg. Asked what he wanted to drink, he plumped for a triple absinthe, followed by two more triple absinths, and then he set off the road for a gargantuan lunch at Les Cargo, which is still Again, here. Still there, yeah. On another occasion, Crowley ate at the French with Louis Umberville Wilkinson and noted the toughness of the kidneys Kidney. and the excellence of the burgundy. Uh, great stuff. I mean, uh, let's l unpack that a bit, actually. So, um, 
the ether uh, that's not a commonly used um, no these he'd days, been a it? great user of ether when younger mm. and he'd had the most fantastic results with it it really made me want to get hold of some but i have spoken to someone who has used it and he says actually it's no big deal it's more like being drunk it's not that he wouldn't say it was superior to alcohol but crowley had extraordinary visions with ether how do you actually take it i, mean, um, uh, I think you can either sniff it but the way people really did it was they drank it which isn't a very wise practice because it irritates your stomach. Don't do this um, at home, kids. Don't no. Don't try it at home. Right. Um, I mean, I'm not even sure where you get it from. Do you get it from like the hardware store or something? No, you can't get it at all now. Oh, You'd okay. have to get it from a laboratory. Right. Um, it's been a big social problem with poor Irish people in the 19th century, mm. and also I think it's been a problem somewhere in Eastern Europe because for mm. some people it, it was cheaper than alcohol when it wasn't right. restricted right. and easy to get hold right. of. Yeah, yeah. But he had the most fantastic visions on ether. He talks. About, he refers to it quite familiarly as ethyl. <laughs> and so he talks about things he's been doing with Ethel, as if he was sort of a woman. Took Ethel to the cinema, um, which I don't think means he's been drinking ether in the cinema. I think he's talking about his mental images. I think he's talking about this extraordinary strand of imagination that's sprung through, that's gone through his mind while under the influence of ether. So it works some, somewhat like an opiate for him then, did it? One of the things with drugs, as we all know, it's partly about your expectations um, and kind of setting. So he wanted quite mystical experiences from ether, and he... Mm pretty much got them yeah my, my only memory of it in literature is Thompson. 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 Yeah. I think he says something like there's nothing worse than a man on an ether binge something like that a slobbering ether <laughs> binge he talks about yeah this is quite a picture you painted here um, because he's not only had the ether or he claims he's had it anyway but he has sort of two triple absinthe he was a, certainly a heavy drinker mm. um, an absinthe at that time was probably still slightly hallucinogenic wasn't it yeah, it would have been wormwood absinthe. Mm. Oh, it depends where it was manufactured. Um, mm. Not if it was manufactured in France, mm. um, where it had been, where you were talking about pastis, the mm. wormwood was gone. But I'm sure the French pro probably had Spanish absinthe and mm. whatever, whatever. Yeah. So you knocked it off with some burgundy as well, and then um, went up the road to Lescargo, the yeah. store around the corner, still open. I don't know. That whether, was pretty think, much uh, his favourite restaurant for right. English restaurants. He was very, very keen as well on Chinese food and curry, which was quite unusual in his day. Right. Curry was not a big thing in Britain then. Have they got a plaque up in Lescargo? No, I don't think he's quite... Um, I don't should, think there'll be... Should should celebrate, no, celebrate the uh, publication of this book with a nice no, lunch. There. No blue plaques for Crowley, sadly. <laughs> um, no. Yeah, but that's quite a, a description of him as well, because this, with his tailcoat and his grey sponge back mm. trousers, like a duke in musical comedy. Slightly um, dated grandiosity. Mm. He was also, when he was um, in court, he was supposed to be the last man in Britain to wear a top hat in the dock. Old-fashioned snobbery or something as well, you think? Yeah, he, he identified as one of nature's aristocrats. So I think he probably thought a top hat was appropriate. Yeah. Right, so I mean, in terms of you, and in, you know, the book, it, it's this... A to Z, isn't it, of his life and stuff? I mean, f for you, what's the most kind of like sort of Crowley, Crowley-ish area of the city then? Is there particular places that you think, well... Oh, I don't know. It falls into a few definite areas. Certainly the Piccadilly area, mm. uh, including German Street, Piccadilly Circus, uh, Regent Street. He was very, very familiar with that area. Also Pimlico, which was very much an area in those days of prostitution. Um, I think I've even seen a anthology of terrible estate agents adverts and one of them in there was was a small brothel in Pimlico because <laughs> of the proximity of the railway station I hadn't realized right. until I do the, until I did this book how prostitution was always concentrated around railway, railway termini right. most notoriously in our time King's Cross right right um, but also right. Paddington Paddington yeah yeah which Victoria spent, Pimlico he also spent time in Paddington right didn't yes he, he did absolutely oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. so that was a lot of a lot of the geography of the book and about his life was to do with areas where the were prostitutes yes yeah yeah and 
bit, bit of a sweeping one to answer, but I mean, what was his view of the prostitutes? Because, you know, he might have been performing sex magic or... What about for them? I mean, was there any? Is there any sense that you got of his their humanity coming through? One or two of them, he told them what he was doing, but in his quite grandiose kind of Masonic language, in his kind of instructions for how to do sex magic, he does suggest that it's better if the second person doesn't know what's going on. Um, but as he puts it in his typical language, he says something like, "It's better that the something should be in ignorance of the sacred." office or something that they occupy, that sort of thing, the sacred, something of the task, whatever. Um, so yeah, he thought it was better if they didn't know what you were up to. Some of them did become friends, though. He had mm. quite a low opinion of women, by and large. Yeah, he comes across as being pretty vile and misogynist much of the time, right? Here's another one. Here's chapter 78, Soho, Josephine Blackley. Oh, yes. One night in October 1938, Crowley was out on an almost fruitless hunt I'm assuming Hunt for Prostitutes. Yes, Hunt for yeah. Prostitutes, mostly around Hyde Park. Yeah. yeah, when shortly before midnight he found a magnificent woman. The most marvellous woman I've struck in years, but really too fat and ugly. Again, that's inverted commas. This was Josephine Blackley, who lived at 256 Newport Buildings, just around the corner. Where Soho Fire Station is now. Okay. Um, because the whole thing was taken out by a huge bomb, as right. you'll... Yeah. As if I know, mm. right, yeah. Densely occupied with a large proportion of Italians, of course, yeah. Almost at the junction of Charing Cross Road and Shaftesbury Avenue. He returned to her from time to time. Inevitably, Crowley met other women in the Soho area. Suggestive names and addresses in his 1930s diaries include Lillian, 40 Dean Street, Top Floor, Coloured Girl, 22 Windmill Street, Dora Williams, 42 Rupert Street, Betty Russell, 3 Brewer Street... Jeanette, 72 Shaftesbury Avenue, and Gladys, just with a postcode, I think. So they're all, all round here, basically. Right? Yeah. It was probably the pursuit of women that led him to join the social dance club at 12 Little Newport Street. Strange thing for him to join. What, what was that? The well, I imagine club? it was somewhere where you could pick up women. I don't know. Um, but it's it's what's now Chinatown, but mm. Chinatown didn't exist in his days. Because, mm. as you know, you know, Chinatown kind of arrived in the 1950s in Soho. Right. Um, Coming from the east, from Limehouse. Yes, because Limehouse had been bombed flat, so they had to relocate Chinatown somewhere. Josephine Blackley's story took a spectacular turn during the war. In the small hours of 17th of April 1941, just before 3.30am, Newport Buildings was hit by a massive 1,000-kilogram parachute bomb and completely destroyed, leaving her under the rubble. But she survived. Curly was astonished to run into her again and learn what had happened. Joe Blackley disinterred after two hours under Newport Buildings, now at 8 Marshall Street. Mm. So uh, there's a sort of slightly kind of weirdly... <laughs> Obsessive, sort of, with the notations of the addresses, or is this oh, yeah. just? Is this well, just I suppose it's also practical. It's practical, is yeah, tonight. Yeah, yeah there are potential, the potential people to return to. I right, think. Okay. Yeah. But as a kind of sexual diarist, he is pretty extraordinary. Rather like Walter of My Secret Life, the great Victorian um, character. No one still not known who he is, who he was. It's pseudonymous, but he had this multi-volume kind of memoir of his life with prostitutes in London. And Crowley's a bit like a sort of latter-day Walter between the wars. Right, Walter's the anonymous author of this very, very strange book, My Secret Life, this kind of epic list of th over a thousand women that the diarist, Walter, uh, obviously somebody who's quite wealthy, claimed to have s slept with, um, working-class women and prostitutes. And uh, I think it's, is it Henry Ashby they think it is? But uh, had he read Walter? No, probably not. No, right. Walter's pretty obscure. I don't know mm. when it was first published, but it was. He probably probably hadn't read Walter. The, but there is something sort of slightly psychopathic, isn't there, about it? particularly about that kind of the the 
with in Walter's case, the kind of minutely recording these acts. Yeah. It's like, for who is it? Is it for yourself yeah. to, to, to... Well, writing's a weird act anyway, isn't it? But yeah, some people do a compulsively catalogue thing. You know, just tell us a little bit as we sort of walk around this area. The London book, seen through Crowley's life and through his eyes, did you have that as an idea before you wrote the book and then when you were actually editing the diaries you were sort of looking at them looking at them with that focus? I think I thought Crowley would be a sort of interesting, a sort of gent about town. It would be interesting to see the sort of social history of London, you know, early curry houses, prostitution around railway stations, um, early cosmopolitan restaurants um, when there were very few foreign restaurants in London, and also the kind of equivocal zones he lived in as a kind of gent on his uppers, mm. um, kind of brush with a sort of bedsit land sort of world at certain stages, and living in furnished rooms. Um, so it's a London of a particular era. Well, it's kind of London really kind of um, late Victorian Edwardian to between the wars and into the Blitz, in fact. Mm. He does a very good account of the Blitz, just small things he notes in his diaries. A lot of hit-and-run car accidents accidents with people driving faster than usual with no lights that kind of thing right. um, and uh, the strange thing is is that he comes across as being lonely is not the right word right definitely not lonely because he doesn't seem to really need anybody he but, gets lonely sometimes right, okay. he's a little bit sort of manic depressive so right. he's very very grandiose a lot of the time and very, has a very strong sense of his own extraordinary genius and then at other times he just despairs hmm. you know no friends no money no one to talk to he does. He does have little patches like that in his diaries. Because he'd been at times very influential, hadn't he? And then, you know, in terms of his effect on other people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then that seemed to come and go, didn't it? So. Yeah. He wasn't hanging out with such distinguished people as he had, because mm. in the late Victorian Edwardian period, the people he was with were quite, quite high caliber mm. people. People he'd known through the Order of the Golden Dawn, for example. Um, and then by the end of his life, his friends are pretty motley. There's a couple of women who are heroin addicts. There's a disciple that Crowley himself finds very boring. Um, there's Gerald Hamilton, sort of frightful camp con man, who is in Christopher Isherwood's novel, Mr. Norris Changes Trains. <laughs> so he's got, they're a bit of a motley crew, his friends by the end. They are, yeah. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the earlier period too, in London with the Golden Dawn and stuff. I mean, for, for people who don't know what that is or was, what was it? What was his role in it then? It was the most influential magical society there's probably ever been. Mm. It was the high point of the 19th century magical revival. Um, had members like W.B. Yeats, the poet, who was very high up in it. Um, and it finally came to a feud between him and Crowley, the so-called Battle of Blythe Road. Uh, the actress Florence Farr was a member, because although it had quite a Masonic organisation, it admitted women on equal terms. Um, all manner of people were in it, and they were high calibre. Alan Bennett, who later went on to become a very important early... Not the playwright. Mm. Uh, went on to become a very important early British Buddhist. Um, they were serious players in the Golden Dawn. But it mm. came to an end around 1900. The Golden Dawn had its vault a very important part of the Golden Dawn thing, um, above a builder's office on Blythe Road, which is now a cafe, George's Cafe, that I've been in, as you can imagine. No plaque, um, can we should No plaque again, no, no, no. no. It should, no. There should be a sort of a cult version of the blue plaque. Yeah, but yes, that was the big the showdown between Crowley and Yates. Right. Um, Crowley engaged a bouncer from a pub in Leicester Square, but the man got lost looking for Hammersmith, uh, so he couldn't help, and Yates turned up with a boxer. And the locks were changed, the landlord right. was called in, there was a bit of argy-bargy going both ways, and finally the, the Crowley side was agreed to have lost. Right. And so the kind of Golden Dawn 
the official Golden Dawn thing, stayed with the Yates faction. Crowley had not been a boxer, but he was quite handy, wasn't he, at one point? He was certainly quite strong. He was certainly quite athletic. He was a great mountain climber. He fought off muggers with a revolver. He didn't, when young, stand any nonsense. Um, I don't know how many, I can't remember if he shot one or two, but he shot someone. In self-defence or just... Yes, I think I think he was attacked in the street by muggers. Yeah. Right, right, OK. Um, uh, and I suppose the other thing about the you know occult London and that time, because, you know, theosophy is coming, isn't it? Theosophy was a big thing for the Victorians. Blavatsky, you've got spiritualism. Spiritualism, thing. yes, yes. You know, Occultism which, which, was very, very, was, was a major part of the Victorian mindset. Yeah, and that also flowered after the First World War. As well, yes, with it, the bereavement so. in particular, mm. spiritualism, uh, the bereavement drove people to spiritualism, yeah. And what is quite interesting in certain parts of London is, is that there are sort of remnants of that time, aren't there? I mean, there's Atlantis around the corner here. Yeah. There's um, Gower Street, there's uh, Treadwells. Yes. There? There's but Watkins in Watkins. Cecil Court as well, the bookshop that Crowley knew very well. Right, and, and then around the British Museum, uh, and then you've got things like Conway Hall and the Swedenborg Society. And there's yeah. a very, very flourishing um, College of Psychic Studies down in Kensington. Really quite an impressive building, I was surprised. Mm. Um, and still going strong. And you mentioned um, earlier, which is probably time to just kind of underline that is that we're going through an occult renaissance now are we but i didn't realize that yeah i think we are the enormous popularity of the harry potter books oh, um, right. okay. the popularity of witchcraft in a particularly right. american popular culture being a witch is part of the thing kind of identity you can adopt um like being a gangster if you're in a city boy um yeah, we are going through a sort of, an, uh, I don't know how long it will last, but at the moment we are in an occult revival. Harry Potter isn't quite as um, alarming as the Alistair Crowley era. No, no, it's, it's, no. I'm going to read a little bit here. This is actually going west. Uh, this is over um, towards Paddington, actually, but in Cumberland Terrace. In July 1933, during a run of short-term addresses, Crowley met Pearl Brooksmith, 34-year-old widow of an older naval officer, Captain Eldred Stuart Brooksmith who had died in 1931. She drank heavily, as Crowley noticed, and not long after their meeting he wrote an imaginary epitaph. Here lies a pearl of a woman who lived in open sin, one end collected semen, the other guzzled gin. That's not, I mean, that's, that's not flattering, is it? Really. She lived at number 40 Cumberland Terrace, just near the western edge of Regent's Park. He called to see her on 9th of August, and before too long they began having sex. On the 15th he records Opus 1, IMD, you're going to explain that in a yes. minute, Phil. Uh, and that it was A1. Can you translate that for us? A1, well, A1 is a very favourite Crowley expression. He always refers to things being A1, or and, and also he says, oh boy, when he gets excited about things, oh boy. Uh, you know, really good curry, oh boy. Um, but IMD is in Manu Domini, which is in the hand of the mistress. Uh-huh. So we're talking about a magical hand job. Right, okay, got it, okay, mm. yeah, right. IMD. Um, next day, Opus 2 took place. They had sex again. again. Okay, right, okay, yeah. And then the 19th, he moved in with her. He moved quite quickly, didn't he, yeah. <laughs> well, he probably didn't have anywhere else to live. <laughs> <laughs> Further works were consecrated to success, lust, yeah. and love, and it was business in usual with Opus 7. Sell magic to Selfridges at a good price. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> it was a commercial uh, yeah. impetus as well. Yeah. So, did Selfridges buy it? Yes, they did. They bought 200 copies, I think. At five shillings each, something oh, like so that. So Magic was a book, I see, right. Oh, yes, yeah, yes, yes, right, yes, yes. yes. Okay. Magic with a K on the end is his great work. Right, magic okay. in theory and practice, as it's now okay. often known. Pearl was an intense sexual partner, and their bouts included shouting, screaming, and clairvoyance on both sides. Whilst Crowley notes include marvellous lust, it was Pearl who produced the memorable line, 
I feel the flame of fornication creeping up my body. Great line, isn't it? I feel the flame of fornication creeping up my body. (laughs) Yeah. It is a great line. Um, But uh, that's quite a line. Uh, Screaming, shouting and clairvoyance. Yeah. Well, that's within an understanding of sex magic that doesn't have to be too supernatural. It's about getting your mind onto another plane, as it were. It's not about wanting to win the lottery. Right. But yes, clairvoyance. So they, they reached a trance state through sexual ecstasy, mm. excitement. I wonder what the neighbours thought. They had complaints at other addresses. They had I'm to sure. leave one of them. There was an address in um, Marylebone where they had to leave because of complaints about the noise. I'm going to play something now, um, Phil. This is called Ether English. I reign above ye, saith the God of justice, in power exalted above the firmament of the Lord. In whose hands the sun is as a sword and the moon as a through thrust in fire, who measures your garments in the midst of my vestures and thrusts you together in the palms of my hands, whose feet I garnish with the fire of gathering and beautified your garments with admiration, to whom I made a law to govern the Holy One and delivered your rod with the ark of knowledge. Moreover, you lifted up your voices and swear obedience and faith to him that liveth and triumpheth, whose beginning is not, nor end cannot be, which shineth as a flame in the midst of your fallacies, and reigneth amongst you as the balance of righteousness and truth. Move therefore and show yourselves, open the mysteries of your creation, be friendly unto me, for I am the servant of the same your God. Who worshipper What was that? Um, that's Crowley's recordings um, of the calls from the great magical work by John Dee and um, his assistant Kelly. So that's Renaissance Elizabethan magic. Um, Dee and Kelly looked into a so-called scrying stone, a kind of black mirror made of obsidian, and they saw angels, and they're able to receive angelic language from them. I think it's fairly obvious that it was Kelly doing it as a kind of fraud that he's worked on poor old Dee, who was quite gullible about these things. But it's the subject of quite a large and impressive book, um, 17th century book by, I think, Merrick Casselbon, A True and Faithful Relation of What Passed Between John Dee and Certain Spirits, I think it's called. Um, and that uh, kit is in the British Museum, isn't it? The yes, kit, yes, yeah. the, scry, the scrying stone, like a m- mirror, and a crystal ball, yes. Um, so Crowley's connection with Dee was, I mean, in this invocation that he's doing there, why was he doing this? Because um, he was very interested in Enochian, which he used himself. Enochian is the apparent language of the angels, which Kelly claimed to receive. And people have looked into it. Crowley says it has a proper syntax and a proper sort of grammar. I'm not sure how true that is. But Crowley very much identified with Kelly. He believed he was a reincarnation of Sir Edward Kelly. Kelly was one of his heroes. Kelly rather than Dee. I think Dee was too nice. Um, Kelly was more of a trickster. So Crowley identified more with Kelly. And Kelly was the one who actually received the Enochian, if we believe he did. He recorded a reading of it in English, as, as it were, the translation. And then, more impressive still, he, he records himself doing it in Enochian. These are the first two invocations calling forth the tablet of spirit in the system of Dr. D and the Red Red Kelly. See Equinox, Volume 1, Number 7 and Number 8. Oh, 
The thing that struck me is, is that, like, how sort of lightweight his voice is. I mean, he's known as the Great Beast. Yeah. Know, maybe it's just that I've seen a few too many horror films, but you'd expect him to be <clears throat> sort of down here. Yes, you know? no, he's not. And, he, and he's quite camp in a way. Yes, yes, he is. <clears throat> it is a surprisingly high voice. Right. Perhaps the record, you know, perhaps it's partly the medium that the bass is lost a bit, but he did have, people remembered he had a high, a high voice, a highish voice. Let's talk about the recordings because, uh, I remember you were telling me before, is, is that, those recordings were recorded just around the corner from here, right? Yes, as far as we know, they're recorded at Levy's Sound Studio, which was on New Bond Street. Um, the phone number was Mayfair 8521. He'd originally, a little bit earlier, he tried to get them recorded at the Star Sound Studios. That was Cavendish Square. So this is very much his kind of West End stamping ground. Um, <clears throat> Star Sound Studios, 17 Cavendish Square, where he recorded the Hymn to Pan, but when he went in the following Monday to get his recordings, they wouldn't let him have it back, um, either because there was trouble about payment or maybe because they understood enough to think it was obscene. Um, so they wouldn't let him... He couldn't do business with them. So he, he went to Levy's sound studio, New Bond Street, and the recordings do survive. And there are some other recordings from earlier as well. Uh, he did quite a few recordings in his lifetime. Yeah, Levy's was a quite well-known recording studio. I mean, all sorts of people recorded there later. Paul Simon, I think even The Clash in the same site anyway. Mm, mm. There's also um, uh, some recordings that we heard which I believe were recorded in HMV on Oxford Street in one of those kind of record-your-own-voice right. machines, which we're very fond of here. You know, you mm. basically put a shilling in a slot and there was an automatic recording thing and then you'd, you'd do it and then a disc would pop out at the end. Yeah, figures in Brighton Rock with Graham Greene, exactly, doesn't it, that kind of recording? Exactly, yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. So um, his life in London came to an end because he didn't actually... Finish his life here. No, he finish went into a kind of final decline down mm. in Hastings. But the, the the best of his days were probably in London. Yeah. And what did he think himself about the city? Did he actually did he talk about it as a thing? Yes, quite thing? a bit. He loathed it, or he's always said he did. Although obviously it was a great place for restaurants, women. But no, he always professed to loathe London because he hated the common people. He hated mass culture. Um, rather in the way that there's this very elitist strain within modernism, T.S. Eliot talking about the, crowd, the great crowd of dead people going across the bridge and that kind of thing. So Crowley hated proletarians and he hated kind of ordinary working, commuting, you know, wage slaves, whatever you want to call them, because his thing was very much a response against the age of the common man. It's a, it was a very defiantly elitist sort of creed. Right, so whereas London provided his playground and the context for his magical sex experiments, plus excellent food, mm. admirable, magnificent, A1, yeah. excellent amongst the adjectives Crowley Escargo. lavishes on his, this classic French restaurant yes, in Soho, yes. where he often went uh, with us in the late 30s, uh, and the picturesque figure of a man riding a snail outside mm. shows the original owner, Monsieur Gordon, who farmed his own snails, snails in, the in the basement. I didn't know that. Yeah, That's, nice. a, that's a great little yeah. London fact, isn't it? Food was very important to Crowley, especially as he grew older. 
Back in 1906, he'd assured Jerry Kelly, they live on all brandy, caviar and truffles in hell. He ended up with his life, did he not, uh, living on boiled eggs and morphine, didn't he? Yeah, so we're told by one of his visitors, yes, mm. yes. Although by the very end of his life, he wasn't so short of money because he was by then being bankrolled by followers in America. So he was saved from total destitution. So if he was on boiled eggs, it was probably because that was all he wanted mm. by then. Let's just talk, uh, as we move towards the end, about his uh, the morphine and the drug use and stuff. Um, of course, you know, self-confessed drug fiend, mm. and a big part of his life. How did that work in London in terms of him getting what he needed? Or he wanted? got regular prescriptions of heroin um, from his doctor, from quite a crew of doctors, actually. There's a lot of doctors in the Crowley story. Um, <clears throat> mainly to help his asthma. They didn't really give him enough heroin to maintain an addict. They just gave him enough to stave off bouts of asthma. So one of, one of the reasons he has such extraordinary dreams, he has the most wonderful dreams, particularly when he's um, uh, living around Cavendish Square. Um, very rarely nightmares. They're usually really quite luxurious dreams. But it's the opiate use. And also the fact that he's always on the cusp of withdrawal, mm. which makes his I think makes his dreams that much more vivid. Um, yeah, so, um, and towards the end of his life, one of his doctors threatened to cut off his heroin supply because by then it was obvious he was thoroughly addicted. Mm. And Crowley said, if you do that, I shall die and I'll take you with me. And by a kind of bizarre coincidence, the doctor did die virtually the day Crowley died. Within hours, he was found dead in his bath. Wow, took him dead to hell to eat truffles. Oh, yes, please. maybe he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have some truffles together. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> and some old brandy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what about other drugs? Oh, he'd taken everything. Mm. Um, mescaline. Mm. He claims to be the man who introduced mescaline to Britain, but he didn't really. It was already... People... Um, Havelock Ellis and people were taking mescaline, I think, before Crowley. Uh, but no, he was a very, very heavy used, user of cannabis as well back in those days, with quite magical expectations. And he's a fantastic writer about drugs. He's such a good introspective writer. Um, he's very, very good at analysing his drug experiences and what they're doing to his thinking. Mm. Um, so it's it's everything. It's opiates, it's cocaine, um, it's mescaline, it's cannabis, it's the lot. Because they were much much easier to get hold of in those days. Um, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so that all contributed to his decline as well, didn't it? On the 16th of November 1942, uh, Crowley moved into his last London address. This is the last chapter of mm. your book. Chapter 93. Chapter 93, mm. and it's 93 German Street. Um, where William Burroughs... Uh, round the corner, round yeah, the corner he lived later. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's obviously yeah. a geographic mm. connection there. Uh, behind Paxton and Whit Whitfield's 18th century cheese shop, as you mm. said earlier. Alice Tubb Speller and a friend helped. His new landlady, Miss Manning, lived in the basement. <laughs> Cavewoman in his diary. Seems to be a reference to her. Yeah. <laughs> and she turned out to be a spiritualist. Living in a world of numbers, planets and correspondences, Crowley was delighted that his new phone number was 9331. Adding 3-1, the numerical key to the Book of the Law that attracted him to 31 Wellington Square to 93. Mm. So he uh, was still at it, wasn't he? You oh, never... absolutely. Totally believed in it and he didn't abandon it. It was right oh. to the end of his life. Yeah. We got to the end of this hour, uh, Phil, pretty much, and just in time for the end of his life. And before we finish, what is it about him that fascinates you? And in fact, what is it about him that still fascinates us? Because, you know, his his star has kind of waxed and waned. As you said earlier, you know, he fell out of, of, of interest, didn't he? It became boring, as it were. Mm. But then, you know, it's rediscovered in the counterculture years of the 60s. And really since then, you know, with the tarot, and, you know, he's, he's a figure of fascination, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's you not going to go away. 
Um, I don't have any great belief in the strictly magical side of his work. I think he's still an underrated writer, definitely an underrated, um, a great minor poet. But because he's been so disreputable, his poetry isn't really recognised. And also because there's far too much of it, the, the good stuff is buried in the dross. But he's at best, he's a great writer. And he's, I suppose, for want of a better word, he's a great English eccentric. Um, that's what the woman called Steffi Grant described, who, who knew, whose husband in particular, Ken, knew Crowley. And she knew both Crowley and Austin Osman Spare, the artist. And she describes them as two great English eccentrics. She obviously came to Britain and this was her idea of what, in, what, the, what in, in England can produce, strange Englishmen. Uh, so for it, her, eccentric sort of de, sort of demotes them to being just to be wacky. Which is they're more than, wacky. more than wacky. Yeah, right? I think eccentricity is underrated. I think eccentricity mm. can be a great thing. Mm. Um, but no, he's certainly he's a he's a kind of um, and and a way into the culture of the eighteen nineties to to see that the strength of that undercurrent in early twentieth century Britain. Mm. Your book. City of the Beastle and the Nice the Crowley, published by Stranger Tractor. So it's just about to land. I mean, you know, it is a terrific London book as well. Um, Phil, and just tell us about the writing of it. Well, it wasn't too bad. Oh. Not compared to other books, they normally take me about 10 years. But it took on a life of its own because I was thinking of something a bit more modest, just really a kind of gazetteer of addresses. Mm. And it became a sort of biography by sights once you put them in chronological order. And it fell very neatly into the fact that there are 93 of them, which is the kind of magic number for Crowley. And it ends on address 93, 93. German Street. So it suddenly developed this kind of crystalline structure of its own. If you'd found the 94th, would you have actually left I'd it have off? been very irritated. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd have suppressed that one. Yeah. Very good. Um, but also a lockdown was a great time for solitary walking around London in mm. deserted streets. So I did quite a bit of walking when I was doing this mm. book. So Phil, you've been helping with the editing of... Yes, they're being edited um, in a finally, finally in a scholarly edition because they're in terrible transcripts with bits missing and words obviously wrong. Um, man in America called William Breeze, who is the great Crowley scholar, also head of the Order of the Temple of the Orient, is editing them. And I've been able to help with this a little bit on the London side. To he was London an extensive people. diarist, was he? Tremendously extensive. There's a couple of volumes missing, but his diaries are an extraordinary resource. They're really mm. worth reading. Um, right. Yeah. Now, you must have come across some things that haven't been out before about him. Um, the extent of prostitute use, I think, and just the texture of his daily life in London, the real texture of a man walking the streets, mm. looking for women, looking for women in Hyde Park, having trouble with his cheap day return at South Kensington Station. You get the whole texture of a life mm. and, and the pleasure that he gets sometimes. Um, these almost manic kind of exaltation, he'll say. A London bus going by sounds like an angel choir. You know when he when he's in a good mood when the mood's in on, is upon him. And so, has helping edit them changed your opinion of him? I've got a much more human sense of him as a living man. Yes, and yeah, because oh. I think we'll agree that he definitely wasn't the wickedest man in the world. He wasn't as harmful as as genuinely wicked people. He, he did some he did some bad stuff though, didn't he? He did do some quite bad stuff, and he had a quite bad effect on some of his followers. There's one particular sad character in the book called Norman Mudd. I've detailed where he lived and his final suicide. What yeah. about his time in China, wasn't he? I mean, he was pretty bad to his wife, wasn't he? Had quite a rocky relationship with all his women. Mm. Um, yeah, they, there's domestic violence on both sides. He did hit his partners, some, and one of them stabbed him and nearly killed him. Um, so life with Crowley wasn't easy. 
What about his kids? Some of them grew up to disown him and kind of escape. Some died young and there is a son who's the main Crowley child who was more or less mad. Uh, he did identify very much as Crowley's son, but he was crazy. There are no, I don't think there are any happy children. Some of them died young from neglect and abuse, really, I think. Uh, neglect and abuse by him? Or? The lifestyle, probably, mm. the parents on drugs. Was he loved by anybody? I mean, you know, in if, in your sort of survey of his London life, I mean, he, there's always prostitutes and there's various women that he had sort of intense sexual relationships with, but was people he genuinely did loved? Lo- people did love him. It's just a pity he couldn't love them back. Because if he'd stayed with any one of numerous women, his life would have been a lot better. Um, Pearl Brooksmith loved him. Um, he left her for someone else and she drank herself to death in the end. Uh, that's, that's pretty much par for the course with nearly all of them. Um, he, couldn't, he could never settle down with anyone. So, of course, he ended up addicted to heroin on his own in Hastings. Um, but then again, the mother of his, one of his children did come and sit with him in his final hours, even at the very end. Um, that was Pat Doherty. People right. did love him. Um, mm. Yeah, but he just didn't quite love them back. In the, mm. he was certainly capable of intense romantic love, but a kind of calmer, caring sort of love. When one of his partners burned her arm, he was having sex with a prostitute to try and magically heal her arm. Don't know she'd have, <laughs> how much she would have appreciated I don't that. Don't think that no. counts. Okay, as taking care of your partner. Even though he put their mingled fluids on the arm of her dressing gown, maybe that doesn't really count. No, I don't no. think. Okay. Not, I mean, call okay. me, call me old-fashioned. But okay. awesome. You could say this. He had a strange way of showing it. Yes, he did. I think he did. Yeah. Um, okay, but, so his following has grown. I mean, he would he would be quite pleased to know that now. It's still alive. His following, mm. and it is growing. I think there's a surprising number of people interested in Crowley in places like. Eastern Europe mm. um, but he's certainly taken as a religious figure probably fair to say more seriously in America than Britain um, so he has achieved a kind of profit status that he wanted Phil thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Gold thank you it's a pleasure thanks to Phil his book City of the Beast Alistair Crowley's London published by Strange Attack to Press is a terrific read I think if you're interested in Crowley, of course, but I mean, it's a great London book. It reveals amazing stuff in detail about the city in a particular era. As Phil mentioned, the OTO is still going. It's an international religious organisation. It says about itself, its membership is based on an initiatory system with a series of degree ceremonies that use ritual drama to establish bonds and impart spiritual and philosophical teachings. It's dedicated to the high purpose of securing the liberty of the individual and his or her advancement in light, wisdom, understanding, knowledge and power. This is accomplished through beauty, courage and wit on the foundation of universal brotherhood. Its message of revolution in human thought, culture and religion is based upon a single supreme injunction. The law of Thelema, do what thou wilt. This law is not to be interpreted as a license to indulge one's every passing whim, but rather as a mandate to discover and accomplish one's true will, Uh leaving others to do the same in their own unique ways. Every man and every woman is a star. I think I agree with that. And love is the law, love under will. I think I probably agree with that too. I'll put a link to Lutio in the show notes if you're interested, and of course to Phil's book. Thanks very much for spending some of your precious time here with us at the Bureau. Come and join us. We'd like to get to know you better. BureauofLostCulture.com. Get our newsletter. Write to us. Support us in any way that you can. We'll be back next time. 
with more esoteric tales from the other side, from the upside down, from the underground, oral testimonies, secret histories of the counterculture and beyond. I was Stephen Coates. This episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture was sponsored by the artist known as The Real Tuesday Weld, www.tuesdayweld.com. This is their track, The Return of the Flea, from an upcoming album called Junk Shop Lullabies. <laughs>